Well, we finished our fourth year in our Life of Christ study as we continue this jet tour of his life, the seven years we have been going through. We finished that fourth year by considering the Light of the World sermon, which is found in John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20, at which time Jesus announced that he is the Light of the World and that whoever follows him will not walk in what if he's the light? They won't walk in darkness, but they'll have the light of life because he is not only the light, he is the life. And at which time he also gave another prophecy, and we've seen him give quite a few prophecies already regarding his crucifixion. At this time he gave another one, and that was in John 8, verse 28. And then he went from the light of the world sermon to what we called his Emancipation Proclamation sermon, where he declared that those who continue in his word are his disciples indeed, and they will be the ones who shall know the truth, and what will the truth do for them? The truth shall set them free. It shall make them free. And it was during the course of this particular sermon, the Emancipation Proclamation, that he told the religious rulers of Israel that they were not the children of God, but that they were the children of who? Of their father, the devil, who was a murderer and a liar from the beginning. And he knew that they were planning to murder him and that the truth was not in them. And their response to that accusation was to accuse him of having a devil. He said, you're of your father, the devil. And they said, no, you're the one who has a devil. And then his return response was to tell them that he did not have a devil, but that he was the very one who existed before Abraham even was, which really infuriated them. He said that he was the very one called I am who existed before Abraham had even been born. And at that particular announcement, what do you think the Jews did? They took up stones to throw at him in order to kill him, but he hid them himself from them because it was not yet his hour, hour to die. So he escaped out of their hands. We don't know how he did that. Every time he did that, it was a miracle that he was able to escape from them. Somehow or another, he just slipped right through. And then in chapter 9 of John's Gospel, we learned of the Lord's miraculous healing of the man who had been born blind. Remember him? He was a special fellow. And the Lord performed this very, very special miracle on what day of the week? On the Sabbath. And he was always doing that to prove his point about the Sabbath. He had just claimed in the chapter before, in John chapter 8, he had claimed to be the light of the world, right? And now he was proving that his claim was indeed true by causing one who had never seen, this man had never seen at all. He was born blind. He caused him to instantly see everything with precision clearness, 20-20 vision. And the Jews were angry about this miracle. Instead of rejoicing with the man, they were angry. And they said that Jesus could not be of God because, once again, he broke their Sabbath rules. He performed this miracle on the Sabbath. And they were not happy for the man, just like they weren't happy for that man at the pool of Bethesda who laid there for 38 years. They were mad at him because he picked up his pallet and walked on the Sabbath carrying something. 
Same thing here. They were mad at this man who had been born blind and was now able to see perfectly. Rather than rejoicing with him, they were furious because of his strong testimony for Christ. And so what did they do to him? They desynagogued him, we called it. They excommunicated him from the synagogue, which was an extremely severe punishment for Jewish people because it not only made them unemployable, but their children couldn't go to the schools and the, um, um, they, they really couldn't even associate with their families. Their families often abandoned them. And it also removed them totally from the religious life of the society, the social and the religious life. So it was a severe punishment. But the man, in spite of that, was so full of joy because not only did he receive his physical sight, but he also then received spiritual sight because the Lord sought him out and he was born again that day when he trusted Christ as his Lord and worshipped him, as you see in this picture. And then we studied, after that, we studied verse by verse the Good Shepherd Sermon, which is a beautiful sermon found in John, the first part of John chapter 10. And again, we have a little mini album of two cassettes on the Good Shepherd Sermon because I don't have time to go through that. It would take another two weeks to do that. But it was a very rich study for us and a very comforting study to find out that if you know the Lord, you are his sheep, and he knows his sheep, and he cares for his sheep. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful sermon full of a lot of truth and comfort for the believer. And in that sermon, he gave two more I Am titles. He was constantly telling the Jewish people that he is I Am, Jehovah God, I Am that I Am. And those two titles were I Am, the Good Shepherd, and what was the other one? Anybody remember? I Am the, the Door, right? And then it was at this point that the Lord sent forth 70 of his followers to minister in the villages and the cities of Judea and Perea. And as he had done when he sent out his 12 apostles, he sent them out first with a very brief ordination sermon and a prayer. That was in Luke 10. And next, he, he um, spoke to them the Lord's parable of the Good Samaritan which was a great teaching on neighborly love and mercy, which both of those should be vital characteristics for all true Christians. We should have neighborly love, and who is our neighbor? As we learned in the parable, anyone who has a need is our neighbor, and we should have mercy on them as well. And then we came to the scene, and I'm going very quickly. This is what we call a jet tour. We came to the scene with Martha and Mary, first time now that we've seen them in our study and they lived in a little village right outside of Jerusalem called Bethany and this was the scene where Martha remember was admonished for being cumbered about with her busyness for the Lord rather than spending time as Mary her sister had chosen to do sitting at the feet of the Lord Jesus learning from him and listening to him and we talked about the fact that we can all, this is a danger all of us can fall into, especially as women, that we can all get so busy doing for the Lord that we forget to spend time with the Lord. And that can be a real danger for anyone in Christian work. You know, you can be serving him so much that you just don't really have the time to spend with him, praying to him and being in his word and worshiping him. 
So we must learn to be receivers before we can be givers. We must be worshipers before we can be workers. We must be students of the word sitting at the feet of Jesus before we can really be servants. In other words, we must be hearers before we can properly be doers. There are a lot of people who get saved and they get so excited about doing that they and they haven't taken the time to hear and they're out there doing a lot of wasteful things. They're spinning their wheels. They're not doing what they really should be doing because they haven't taken the time to be hearers. So we need to, again, have that perfect blend of being hearers of the word and then doers. And then that was lesson number 100. Then beginning with lesson 101, we moved for a while into Luke's gospel account. And do you remember from our first week study this year, Luke's specialty was on not the sermons that was in Matthew, but on, does anybody remember? What parables, right. Luke specializes or focuses on the Lord's parables. And at this time in his ministry, he was really heavy, heavy on parables. Now, a parable is an illustration from something concrete or something common, you know, which all the people were familiar with. He did a lot of uh, agricultural stories because the people were an agricultural people, like with the sower and the seed, you know, and they could understand that. Something common and concrete, it's an illustration which then is thrown alongside of, which is the literal meaning of the word parable, it's thrown alongside of a deeper truth in order to make that spiritual deep truth um, more easily understood and more easily remembered and more interesting and more applicable to one's daily life. Now, as we came to Luke 11, verses 5 to 8, we studied the Lord's parable of the importunate friend. Importunate. And that word means uh, someone who is stubbornly persistent. And in that parable, the Lord was teaching his disciples the importance of being persistent in our prayer lives. Actually, in this parable and in another one entitled The Parable of the Persistent Widow and the Unjust Judge, which is over in Luke 18, Jesus was teaching through those two parables the um, value of persistence in our prayer lives. In this parable of the importunate friend, he was teaching his followers to be persistent in their intercessory prayers on behalf of other people. Because the main character in that story, if you remember, persistently knocked at his neighbor's door in the middle of the night in order to get bread for his friend who had come and visited him in the middle of the night. So it teaches us persistence in our intercessory prayers on the behalf of others. And then in the persistent widow story, the Lord was teaching believers to be persistent in their prayers for themselves. And furthermore, it's also interesting to realize that the one parable, the parable of the man knocking at the door, really illustrates for us the Lord's words in Matthew 7, 7, where he said, knock and it shall be opened unto you. Because he kept knocking, knocking, knocking until the door was opened unto him. And he received the bread that he was asking for for his friend. And this parable uh, illustrates the Lord's words in that same Matthew 7, 7 passage where he says, Ask, and it shall be given unto you. Because she kept asking, asking, asking that unjust judge until he finally gave her what she wanted. 
and also there is another parable. I don't have this in my notes, but if you remember the parable of the um, Pharisee and the publican, in that parable we have an example of the last part or the middle part of that verse, seek and ye shall find, because the publican went into the temple seeking mercy, be merciful unto me, and he found the mercy he was looking for, didn't he? So it's beautiful, those three parables on prayer. We have a, an illustration of ask and it shall be given unto you, seek and ye shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you, Matthew 7, 7. Then in the next parable, which was the parable of the empty house, found in uh, Luke 11, the Lord was again declaring to the people that it is impossible to remain neutral when it comes to him, concerning him. You cannot remain on neutral ground when it concerns the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he was teaching about the danger of neutrality. And by way of that parable of the empty house, he was really describing the spiritual state or the spiritual condition of Israel at that time of the first century. And, and how after rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ, it would even get worse. In the parable of the, um, of the empty house, what we had there was a, we had a story of a man, his house, his tabernacle, had a, an unclean spirit in it, remember? And the unclean spirit departed and he went walking through dry places seeking rest. And he didn't find any. And when he went back to that man's house, the man in the meantime had swept it clean. And so the unclean spirit said, hey, this place is really clean now. So he went and got seven of his buddies, seven more wicked spirits, and all eight of them moved into this man's house. What the Lord was telling Israel was that before Christ came, they were bad. They had like one, one unclean spirit in them. They were not at all where they should have been spiritually. Then John the Baptist came along the last of the Old Testament prophets. And he was basically the one who helped sweep Israel clean by teaching, you know, and preaching repent. And a lot of people came to be baptized, the baptism of repentance, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But when they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, what happened? Actually, the Lord was saying that they got eight times worse when they rejected their own Messiah. And uh, so that's what he was telling them through that parable, a very important parable, but one that many people really don't even remember is in the scripture, the parable of the empty house. And then the Lord proceeded, right, following that parable, he proceeded to give uh, or to pronounce six woe denunciations upon the wicked ways of the religious rulers because the religious rulers of Israel were really the ones who were responsible for Israel's condition because they're, the people just blindly followed their leaders. And these six um, woe denunciations were pronounced, first of all, on the Pharisees. He pronounced three upon them, and then he turned and pronounced three more upon the scribes who were the lawyers or the students of the law. First of all, he denounced the Pharisees for their wrong priorities. He told them that they were scrupulous over the externals of the law, being sure, for example, as this man is saying here, to even tithe one-tenth of their mint and their herbs. But they neglected the far higher priority of their duty to God and to their fellow man. 
With regard to the small matters of the ceremonial law, they were very zealous. They were extremely zealous. But to the most basic spiritual truths, such as having true, genuine love for God and for their fellow man, as exemplified in their treatment of that man who had been born blind, um, they were no better, really, than the heathens in that regard. So what were they doing? They were majoring on the minors and minoring on the majors. And he also denounced them for their wrong priority of placing more importance on their reputation than on their character. Do you remember we talked about that? Uh, that reputation is what people think you are. Character is what God knows that you are. And there is a big difference. He said that their cups were perfectly clean on the outside, but they were filthy, dirty on the inside. And furthermore, he then went on to accuse these hypocritical leaders of the nation of Israel of being like graves that appear not. And men don't see them, and so they walk over them. And to the Jews, if you walked over a grave, you know, let's say it wasn't marked or whitewashed and you didn't see it, and you walked over where someone was buried, you were immediately um, defiled. And so he said that the Pharisees were just like these unmarked graves. The people, when they came into contact with them, were defiled. They were made unclean. And he also told them that they loved the praise of men more than they loved the praise of God, and that they uh, selfishly sought out the best seats in the synagogue. And they, um, they loved the greetings of respect and honor that they would receive from the common people when they were out in the marketplace. They cared more about reputation than they did character. Internally, they were full of rotten corruption. You remember at another time, it wasn't in this particular passage, but another time he said that they were like whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones. You know, they looked all pretty on the outside with their white robes. But inside, they were full of death and corruption and sin. Now, this was not unloving of the Lord Jesus Christ to denounce these men for these things, because when the Lord saw sin in arrogant and prideful men, he knew that he had to be about as boldly blunt as he possibly could be in order to um, try to get their attention. This was, he did this out of love. He loved these men. And he had to be, I mean, he couldn't beat around the bush with them. He had to point the finger right at their sin. And even then we know that they were willfully blind to it. They purposely, they hated him because that he did expose the truth. And so he was not being unloving. You know, we're not being unloving when we point out to people their sin. We're pointing it out for a reason. I mean, we know we're sinners saved by grace and we want them to be saved. He was harsh with the, these men because he truly loved them and he truly wanted them to come to him for salvation. Well, then he turned to the scribes, the lawyers, the, the students of the law. These men spent all their time in the law, in God's Old Testament. And he denounced them, first of all, for teaching others what they themselves did not practice. They were experts at adding burdens to the people, but they had no compassion at all in regard to helping those people carry the added burdens, the burdens that they themselves had added. 
burdens that weren't in the Old Testament. You know, I'm talking about all the man-made rules and regulations and traditions that they added to the Mosaic Law. As a matter of fact, they were hypocrites in that they had the impudence to lay yokes upon the consciences of the common people while they themselves went out and found all these little loopholes or made exemptions for themselves. You know, you people have to do these things, but we can get around it. And so they found all these little ways that they didn't have to do what they told the people to do. What they had done is they had taken the Mosaic Law, the 613 commandments, which are found in the Pentateuch, and they had divided them between the positive and the negative laws. There are, by the way, if you would go through the Pentateuch, you'd find there are 248 do's, positive laws, and there are 365 do-nots. There's one for every day of the year, something to do not. Um, But to, to all that, if that wasn't enough yoke to put on people, They had added, of course, all of their man-made little traditions and their ceremonial regulations and their rules and et cetera, et cetera. And this was upon a people who were already heavily laden with the the yoke of bondage to the Romans. They had no compassion in helping these people with this heavy, heavy burden. And then the Lord went on and he also accused them of being just like their wicked forefathers who had murdered so many of the prophets from all the way from Abel to Zechariah. You know, many of the Old Testament prophets had been hated by the people for the message that they proclaimed from God, and so they had been they had been killed. Remember, Isaiah was put in a log, and he was sawn asunder. He was sawn in half. A lot of them were killed. But he, he said that they were just like their forefathers. In fact, they were even worse because they were planning on killing who? The Messiah himself, the very Son of God. And then the third woe denunciation, which he made upon them or pronounced upon the scribes, was for having robbed the people of the key of knowledge. And that refers to the truth of the word of God. The common people, as I said earlier, the common people depended upon their spiritual leaders for knowledge from God's word. But their reinterpretations of his word and their added traditions and their regulations did not reveal the true God to the people, nor did they reveal the demands that his holiness made on those who desired to to really be saved. Rather, they hid God behind all these rules and regulations, and they made a personal knowledge of the living God almost impossible or at least very, very difficult. And this, of course, was especially true when these religious rulers attempted to turn the nation from the one who had come to reveal the true character and nature and holiness and mercy and love of God. And that one was who? The Lord Jesus Christ. So this was a very, very serious accusation. And this is one that, you know, I wouldn't want to be a preacher, a liberal preacher for anything, because I can just hear Jesus saying the same thing to them. There are so many men in pulpits, and not just the preachers, but other people in leadership capacity in the church today, the church across the world today, who are hiding the key of knowledge from their people. And the people look to them for their guidance, don't they? 
I mean, they look to them thinking because they've been to seminary and have gone to Bible school that they should know. And so many of these men, sad to say, are hiding the key of knowledge from the people. And they're not telling the people the basic, simple gospel message. You know, they're presenting a social message, a social gospel. And because of that, so many people sitting in churches think that they're fine and they're okay before God, and they're not. They have never really, truly been born again. It's a very serious, serious denunciation. Now, it was bad enough that the religious rulers themselves willfully would not enter into God's kingdom by accepting Christ's invitation. But it was worse, and it's worse for these liberal preachers, that they were hindering others from entering as well. They had so successfully convinced the people that no one could understand or explain the law except them because they had been properly taught, you know, in the rabbinical schools, that most of the people depended totally on them for their spiritual guidance. And that's why it is so important for every person <clears throat> to search the scriptures for themselves. Don't ever depend on someone else for your spiritual guidance. You go directly to the word itself and let the Holy Spirit teach you. And don't depend on me. That's why I want you to do homework. I could just, I could easily say something wrong. Don't believe everything I say. See if what I say matches up with what the scripture says. Well, <clears throat> it is very well known that hypocrites do not generally like to have their hypocrisy exposed because that does great damage to their reputation especially if that hypocrisy is being exposed before the public. Now, when the scribes and the Pharisees heard these six woes of judgment pronounced upon them by this simple, common Galilean carpenter in front of all the people that were standing around, what do you think their reaction was once again? They were I can only think of the word infuriated. They were very, very upset. And therefore, they attempted to get him to say something uh, heretical or blasphemous. And they provoked him as, as much as any people could ever possibly provoke anyone. They accused him of all kinds of things, and they just used all sorts of attacks, trying to get him to trap himself by something that he would say. But we have no record that he said anything at that particular time. You can look that up. It's in Luke 11, verses 53 and 54, and see that what I'm saying is true, that they were greatly provoking him. But he uh, did not respond to their anger. And it became now very evident to the disciples and probably to everyone else that there would be no reconciliation between Jesus of Nazareth and the religious rulers of Israel. Well, after his six woes, we then came to his five warnings. First six woes and then five warnings. And that was found in, these are found in Luke chapter 12. His first warning in that chapter was to beware of hypocrisy. He had just been exposing hypocrisy. So then he went on to say to the multitudes of the people who were standing around, beware of the leaven. And leaven symbolizes what in the scripture? sin beware of the sin of the scribes and the pharisees which he went on to say very specifically is hypocrisy hypocrisy is pretending that you are something that you're not you all know that is putting a mask on you may be pretending that you're a christian 
and you're not. If you're doing that, you're not only doing great damage to yourself, but you're being a hypocrite before other people. Secondly, he warned the people to beware of covetousness, which was another primary sin of the materialistic spiritual leadership of Israel at that time. That was one of the reasons they hated Jesus so much, not only because he pointed out their sins, but because he cleansed the temple and really hurt their um, booth business in which they had been making a lot of money off of the people. Now, he illustrated the foolishness of covetousness with the parable of the rich fool. Or some have called it the parable of the rich farmer, which is found in Luke 12, verses 16 to 21. And if we just listen to this rich farmer's thoughts, what he was thinking in his mind, I think that we can definitely see that his whole world was centered on himself. Because he used the pronoun I six times, and he used the possessive pronoun my five times. Listen to what he said, or what he thought to himself. What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my, my fruits. This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. Didn't give credit to God at all for what he had, did he? It was his. And I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be what? And be merry. Well, he didn't have long to be merry, did he? This rich farmer felt absolutely no need to trust in God because he had an abundant supply of all he thought he could ever need in this life. But God very suddenly intervened in his selfish life by showing him that it is far more important to acquire spiritual wealth than it is to acquire material wealth. He said to him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee, and then whose shall these be? these things, these great barns that you have built and all these things that you have accumulated. The farmer saw himself as facing the easy life, didn't he? But God saw him as facing eternal loss. Now the third thing about which the Lord warned, in addition to warning about being a hypocrite and being covetous the third thing he warned the multitudes to whom he was speaking at this time was to beware of worry and this might hit a little closer to home <laughs> beware of worry Corey ten boom says that worry does not rob tomorrow of its sorrow you know worrying about what might happen tomorrow doesn't do any good worry does not rob tomorrow of its sorrow it robs today of its strength the word the literal greek word i think we studied this when we did this lesson for worry means to strangle it'll strangle all the strength out of you to sit around and worry now in this lesson which was 102 in our study we uh, learned of six reasons why christians shouldn't worry now non-believers have every reason to worry every reason in the world to worry until they get saved because they're headed down the road to destruction but there are we gave six reasons why christians should not worry 
and those were based upon the Lord's teaching in Luke 12, verses 22 to 34. I don't have time to give you the reasons, but you can get that cassette tape if you want, number 102. And then Jesus also warned the people after that to be watchful. Now, the best way for Christians to conquer hypocrisy and covetousness and worry is for them to be watchful, to be looking for the Lord's return. If you and I are living with a watchful expectancy to the future, then it will be very difficult for us to be ensnared by the things of the present. They won't mean as much to us if we realize that everything we have here is just temporary. If we keep our eyes focused on what is laid in store for us in the future when the Lord returns. The Lord then went on to explain how to be ready for his return in the parable of the faithful servants, and that's found in Luke 12, verses 35 and 240. And then his fifth warning was to be discerning with regard to spiritual truth. He told the people that if they were as discerning about spiritual matters as they were with regard to the weather, then they would be far better off. You know, they were very good about preaching, uh, let's say, concerning the coming of a storm or the change in the temperature. They would look at the sky and say, well, because the sky is a certain color, tomorrow it's going to be um, warm and balmy or tomorrow's going to be cold and snowy or whatever. They could, they could predict the change in temperature or the coming of a storm, just as our scientists, our, our meteorologists can do today, tell us that this storm was going to be passing through which we're having today but they could not discern the time of their visitation by their own messiah in other words they could not interpret the signs of the times they should have known by way of their old testament scriptures they should have known what was happening and who jesus was and we discussed the daniel 9 24 to 27 prophecy not at this time, but at another time in our study, we have discussed that, how they could have even calculated the very day when Jesus would arrive and announce himself officially as the Messiah, which was the day of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday. So they should have known what was happening. They should have been able to read the signs of the times. They also had, you know, John the Baptist, who had given them plenty of warning. But... They were allowing their willfully blinded spiritual leaders to lead them astray. And we have, of course, you know, the same thing going on today, don't we? Exactly the same thing. We have men who send satellites into outer space, spend billions and billions of our tax dollars to do so, in order to tell us, you know, what, what kind of temperature and what kind of landforms exist on other planets as if we really care. You know, but at the same time, they have no idea whatsoever what God is doing right here on planet Earth. They have no earthly idea what he's doing. They spend all this money and they spend their whole t lifetimes researching how to get to these faraway stars and these faraway galaxies. But they have no interest at all in how to get to God up in heaven. 
And that's just a sad commentary on our day and age. But men cannot read the signs of the times. It's amazing how blind they are to all that's going on in the Middle East. You and I know what's going on. I hope if you've studied Revelation and if you've studied the Old Testament prophecies, we know what's happening when they say peace, peace, and safety, then sudden destruction. And we're right there at the doorstep, I think, of all this happening. I'd love to be able to teach Revelation again because of what's going on over there. But we need to be able to read the signs of the times. The Lord's about to return. And he could say these exact same words to men today that he said to the religious leaders then. Anyway, then in Luke 13, see, we're still in Luke. Luke was very heavy on parables. And at this time in the Lord's ministry, he was really, really speaking in parables because parables reveal the truth to those who have ears to here and they conceal the truth to those who don't have spiritual ears anyway he then spoke the parable of the barren fig tree in which he taught really in that parable why israel was worthy of judgment she had been planted and cared for very specially and very specifically with god's own personal attention and care just as the owner of the vineyard in the parable planted a very special fig tree right in the middle of a vineyard. Now, that's very unusual to put a fig tree in the middle of a vineyard. But that's what he did with Israel. He planted her in the middle of the vineyard of the world. She's a special fig tree. And uh, he, he, was, he delighted in her. She was the apple of his eye or the fig of, of his eye. Um, she was the special object of his affection. And yet, after years and years of care, all throughout the Old Testament days, when he finally came to look for fruit on this fig tree of Israel, what did he find? He found she was barren. He found no fruit on her. So he commanded his vine dresser to cut her down to the ground, which we know is exactly what happened in 70 A.D. when God allowed Titus Vespasian to come in with his Roman troops and cut Israel down to the ground. She was utterly destroyed at that time. However, those who teach that God is through with Israel forget what it says in Job 14, verse 7. There is hope of a tree if it be cut down that it will sprout again and that the tender branch thereof will not cease. They forget that a fig tree is not destroyed when it is cut down. We did this years ago. We have a number of fig trees in our yard, which we didn't plant, but the former owner planted years and years ago. And one of those fig trees was growing in the way of part of a driveway where we park our vehicle. So my husband got down his old axe, out, his old axe and he cut it down, cut that fig tree right to the ground. Well, I, that was, I don't know how many years ago, but that fig tree is huge now. <laughs> so I have a living illustration of this. But that will happen. If you don't destroy the root structure, it's going to grow back. God didn't say to dig out the root. He said just cut her down. Because its roots will eventually grow back into a new tree. And that new tree, that new fig tree, I think, I believe 100%, is what we have seen to... Uh, to again be budding in the massive return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel, which began really the beginning of this century and has really picked up uh, a lot of speed lately. 
with a lot of people, well, since 1948, Israel has really, really started to um, bud those leaves again. Yet there is no fruit, is there? And there won't be fruit until the Lord returns. And then she looks upon him who she has pierced, and she will know who he is, and then the fruit will come out. Then those figs will really come out. And remember what we studied in the Olivet Discourse when the Lord told his disciples to learn a lesson about the time of his second coming. Um, and he did this in another fig tree parable. He said, when his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. He again was talking about a fig tree and saying, when you start to see the leaves on the fig tree and other trees begin to um, bud, then you know that my return is right at the door. Now, when Israel rejected her Messiah, she was cut off, as that parable of the barren fig tree told us. She was cut off, but she was not permanently terminated. And, God, and uh, Jesus illustrated this. Remember, we'll talk about this in another week or so. When he was on his way to Jerusalem and they passed by a barren fig tree, a literal one, just like in his parable, what did he do to that barren fig tree he cursed it and it withered up and died he was saying right then what he was going to do to israel that she would wither up and die because she had refused her because she was barren she had no spiritual fruit she had refused her own messiah so but she was merely set aside while god then grafted on another branch to his tree and that branch is called the church which would produce fruit for him in the meantime. Since Israel wouldn't, he grafted on us, we're the church, and we are bearing fruit for him now. But Israel's root structure is still there, make no mistake about it, and she has shown evidence of that in our very generation, and I think that is very, very exciting. Now then we ended our fourth year in our Life of Christ study with Jesus attending the Feast of Dedication. And this took us back into John's gospel. We've been in Luke looking at parables. Then we went back into John. In the final lesson for that fourth year of study, we took a look at the historical significance of the Feast of De Dedication. And it was a very interesting study. The story of Antiochus Epiphanes and how he desecrated the temple. You know that feast better as what? What is up here? Hanukkah. You know it better as Hanukkah. It celebrates the cleansing of the temple after Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated it. You remember when he slaughtered a pig on the, on the altar in the temple and he spread the juices of the pig all over and it was just terrible and he forced the pig meat down the throats of the priests. All that happened in uh, 165 B.C. And then afterwards that we had the, uh, or they had the Maccabean revolt when the Maccabees rebelled and uh, overthrew anti the Syrian forces. And then they went into the temple and they cleansed it. And they had a, a, a cruise of oil that miraculously lasted instead of one day so they could see to cleanse the temple. It miraculously lasted eight days so that they were thoroughly able to cleanse the temple. And they celebrate that miracle of the light that stayed lit for eight days, they celebrate it with the celebration of Hanukkah, which occurs at the same time that you and I as Gentiles are celebrating Christmas. 
anyway, if you want to find out more about that, get those tapes because it's a very, very interesting study. And in that fascinating historical study, we came to learn of the amazing significance of the Jewish menorah or the, you know, the candlestick that you will see in Jewish windows at Hanukkah, at the time of Hanukkah. This menorah holds nine candles, and we saw that this is a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is symbolized by that central candle of the menorah, although the Jews themselves don't realize this. They, they have no idea, because the middle, or the servant candle, as they call it, is the one which is used to light all of the other candles. And the Lord Jesus, you know, is the light of the world who came into the world to lighteth every man. And there's more significance in that, which we took more time to develop in that study. It was during this feast, which Jesus attended in the last year of his physical life on earth, that a, a group of Jewish inquirers then approached him as he stood on Solomon's porch in the temple area, the temple proper, and they asked him to very plainly tell them if he was the Christ. They really didn't want to know. They were, again, trying to get him to blaspheme. But they said, tell us plainly if thou art the Christ. Now, his response to that question brought the clearest claim, not only to his messiahship, but to his deity that I think the Lord Jesus ever made. Because in addition to telling them that the works which he did, he did in his father's name, in addition to telling them that, uh, he also told them that anyone who was truly his sheep would hear his voice and they would follow him and consequently they would be eternally secure not only in his father's hand but in his hand. And to say that, he was claiming deity, that you'll be eternally secure in not only God's hand but in my hand. But in addition to saying both of those things, he also made this statement which really blew them away. I and my father are one. And when they heard that, they immediately sought to kill him. But once again, he escaped out of their hands because it was not yet his hour to go to the cross and he left Jerusalem. Now, he would not be returning to Jerusalem again until that famous day, which we now refer to as Palm Sunday. And when he left Jerusalem, he went to the area of the Jordan where John the Baptist had at the first been baptizing. We know that area to be called Perea, an area primarily made up of Gentiles. By this time in our Life of Christ study, John the Baptist has already been beheaded by Herod Antipas. So he has been out of the scene probably for over a year, or maybe over two years at this point. Now, it's interesting that the Lord's final months of ministry before he faced the cross were spent largely in this Gentile area of Perea because I think this really, again, was a foreshadowment of things to come during the church age. In Perea, Jesus found acceptance because the people there were removed. You know, they were pretty far removed distance-wise from the heavily prejudiced area of Jerusalem. Now, many people poured into Perea 
when they heard of his arrival there. And it says in the scripture that he ministered to them by way of his preaching and his teaching and his healing. And the amazing response of these Gentile Pereans to what they heard from him and what they saw from him was the same everywhere he went in that land. And this was their response. They said all the things that John, and they were referring to John the Baptist, who had originally baptized in their area, they, were say, they said all the things that John the Baptist spoke of this man are what? Are true. You can read about that in John 10, verse 41. Isn't that amazing? And it also goes on to say in that same passage that many in Perea believed in him. In contrast, his own people did not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. And sadly, the Lord had to speak these tragic words. These are the people coming in Perea. I forgot to put that up. He had to speak of the missed opportunity of Israel when he looked out over Jerusalem and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You can just hear the sorrow in his voice when you read those words. Thou which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings and these tragic words, and ye would not not you could not but you willfully would not let me gather you up and love you the way i wanted to that's in luke 13:34 and then he proceeded at that point after he said that to jerusalem you remember he went on to forecast the coming desolation of both the city of jerusalem and her temple and then he went on to forecast her future belief in him. He didn't end with the bad news. He did go on to tell her that she would one day believe in him at his second coming. You can read about that in Luke 13, verses 34 and 35. And then the next event in our chronology of the Lord's life was the parable of the seats at a wedding feast. Luke 14. Back in Luke now because we're back to a parable. And in that parable, he taught further principles about true humility. They always wanted the best seats at a banquet, the best seats at a, uh, the synagogue. And here he gave this parable of the great banquet to teach again about humility. And I won't get into all the details. Then after that, he gave the parable of the great banquet, the parable, first of all, of the seats at a wedding feast, and then the parable of the great banquet. They were back to back in Luke chapter 14. And he taught that parable to teach the truth that participation in the future kingdom would not be determined by a person's physical blood relationship to Abraham. You know, in other words, they wouldn't get into the kingdom and be able to sit at the great banquet just because they were Jewish. But rather, participation in the future kingdom would be determined by one's response to the invitation extended by the one who would provide this great banquet. And who was that one? God himself. Jesus showed that men and women can have all kinds of excuses for not accepting the invitation into the kingdom. One man in his parable said that he had just bought a piece of land 
I'm showing you on the overhead a contemporary correspondence to each of these examples. This man in the parable said he bought a piece of land and he had to go see it. Now, can you imagine buying a piece of land without having first seen it? A rather shallow excuse. I mean, it, it's on that level with having to feed the pigs <laughs> that I talked about. And then another man said that he had just bought five yoke of oxen and he had to go and test them out. Again, a very shallow excuse. Because nobody would spend that kind of money, cost a lot of money to buy five yoke of oxen, without having first tested the animals to make sure that they were strong and healthy. And then another man's excuse was really the best of all, I thought. Very weak, really, when we studied about the betrothal period. But this man's excuse was that he had just gotten married, and so he simply said, I cannot come. <laughs> I thought that was the best excuse of all. Anyway, all three of these excuses, when we, exam when we examined them in our study, we found they were very shallow, and they really held no weight at all. Someone once said that the person who is good at giving excuses is, really, is usually not good at giving anything else, and that's true. If you're good at giving excuses, you probably are not good at giving anything else. And then as the parable went on, the host sent out his invitation because all these people had refused it. So he said, well, go out into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in hither the maimed and the poor and the lame and the blind. And he said to those that live out on the highways and the byways or the hedges, out on the country roads, outside of the city, give these people an invitation to come to my great banquet because I've prepared all this anyway. Somebody has to come and enjoy my free hospitality. And it was these people we saw in the parable who gave no excuses why they couldn't accept his free invitation. In fact, you know, they were glad to be invited. You see, they were either too poor to purchase land or oxen, or they were too blind, or they, I mean, they were blind. He said, invite the blind. They were blind, and they couldn't see the new land that they had just purchased. Um, if they were blind, they had no money because they were just beggars, and they couldn't purchase the land. Or they were else they were handicapped. He said, invite the lame and the maimed. And such people were rarely given in marriage to another person. So they couldn't give the excuse that they had just been married, and they couldn't come. And so... Consequently, they were only too happy to accept the unexpected and the generous offer to attend an elegant banquet given by the wealthy host himself. Now, through this parable, Jesus was again giving a message to Israel. God had extended an invitation to Israel to come to his elegant banquet. He had extended that invitation all throughout the Old Testament through every one of his prophets. And the banquet, of course, you know, symbolizes his kingdom. However, when the time for the actual banquet arrived, um, which was the message that John the Baptist gave to the nation, you know, behold, the kingdom is at hand. It's time to come now. You've had invitations for years. Now the banquet is ready. This was also Christ's early message. You know, the, the kingdom is at hand. But when that time came she gave her shallow excuses for why she could not come some of the people were simply too preoccupied with material possessions 
and the status quo of the way things were to bother taking Christ's invitation seriously. That was a problem of the religious leaders. They liked the status quo. They liked things the way they were. They liked all the popularity they had with the people and the prestige. And they liked the money they were getting from their booth business, and they didn't want things to change, so they gave their shallow excuses. And others were too preoccupied with their business affairs, you know, and others were too preoccupied with their personal affairs. And the result was widespread rejection of the Lord's invitation by the nation as a whole. Therefore, since the banquet had already been prepared anyway, the generous host, God himself, extended an invitation to those who would have considered themselves too unworthy to have even been invited. This not only spoke of the common people of Christ's day, who were the ones that generally accepted Christ and believed in him. Generally speaking, although there are always exceptions, there are the Nicodemuses and the Joseph of Arimatheas, but generally speaking, most of the people who came to Christ and believed him were the blind, the maimed, the lame, and the poor, the common people of his, the outcasts, the publicans and the prostitutes, the outcasts of society because they just couldn't believe that invitation was being extended to them. Come unto me. Oh, and they were so happy to hear it, and so they came. But it also refers to those, that's this part of his invitation, going to the streets and lanes of the city. These were Jewish people. But then when the host said, go to into the highways and the hedges, he's speaking about the, the people that are outside of the city, and that refers to who? Exactly, to Gentiles. He extended the invitation to Gentiles. And again, Gentiles thought of themselves as so unworthy that many of them, as we just saw by the Pereans, were so excited to have the invitation that they gladly came. And then to reemphasize the cost of discipleship, the Lord added two more parables, the parable of the tower builder and the parable of the king going to war. And we discussed those in detail, don't have time now, in Lesson 107. And then, in order to teach God's great love and concern towards sinners, he gave three very beautiful parables, which I, I really wish I had time to repeat these because these are wonderful parables, um, but I don't have the time. Again, you can get the cassettes. The par- he taught the parable of the lost sheep. You know, you have 101 goes astray. He taught the parable of... Um, Well, that's not it. The parable of the lost coin and then the parable of the prodigal son. Everybody knows that parable. That was in Lesson 108. Then following those five parables, the tower builder, the king going to war, the lost sheep, lost coin, the prodigal son. Following those, he gave three more parables. I told you he was heavy on parables at this time. I think we were in parables. It seemed like at least a year, maybe a year and a half, we were in parables. He gave three more to teach the important principles with regard to stewardship. To teach about right stewardship, he gave the parable of the shrewd steward. And in that lesson, we learned that the Christian steward's approach to life, and we're all stewards. If you've been saved by grace, you are a steward. You are accountable to use what God has given you wisely. So our approach to life should be to invest our lives and our money and our time and our gifts and our talents both for the good of others 
and for the glory of God. Believers are to use their God-given wealth and health and all their privileges and their opportunities faithfully and productively because one day each of us is going to give an account of what we have done with what he has given us. And this accounting will not only include what we have done with our treasures, uh, these all start with T, not only with our treasures, some people just think if they tithe that they've done their uh, duty, but he's also going to hold us accountable for what we've done with our talents, and that means including our spiritual gifts and with our time. Time is very important to the Lord. We are to redeem the time wisely and to use our time for him. So look over your time schedule each week and see how much time are you investing in, in, in the Lord, in his service, compared to how much time you're spending just spinning your wheels on things that won't count for eternity. And then to teach about poor or wrong stewardship, he gave the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. You all know that parable, don't you? And then that was a very famous, that is a very famous parable. And one, again, worth studying, so you can get Lesson 109 if you want to. And then to teach about responsible stewardship, he taught the parable of the unworthy slave, which is, was a story that emphasized the need for faithfulness to duty by God's servants, no matter what the demands might be. No matter what he asks us to do, we should be faithful to do it, even if it seems to be the smallest thing or the biggest thing. Faithfulness is a key. Believers are to realize that the very best that they can do for Christ is but the very least that they should do. Then within just a matter of weeks before he would go to the cross, we're getting close now to where we were. <clears throat> just a matter of weeks before he would go to the cross, God gave a climactic testimony to his beloved son's glory in the mightiest work that he ever performed other than his own resurrection and what was this who knows what this mightiest work he ever performed was right exactly the raising of Lazarus from the dead Lazarus was the brother of Martha and Mary now although this was not the first time <clears throat> that the Lord had raised someone from the dead it was the most significant other than his own resurrection of course because in the cases of both the widow's son of Nain and Jairus's little 12 year old daughter both of those had just died shortly before the Lord arrived on the scene and raised them from the dead but in the case of Lazarus not only had he already di died but he'd already been buried and he had been dead for how many days four days and his body had already begun the humanly irreversible corruption process i say humanly irreversible because we know one day god's going to reverse it Divine. and this was this was just an amazing fantastic wonderful miracle which i again can't repeat at this time but we do have a little mini album called the resurrection and the life two cassettes and we um, teach that that was in lessons 110 and 111 well following that spectacular miracle the Lord healed ten lepers and um, how many came back to thank him only one and of course following that little incident we had a lesson on thankfulness being thankful 
which the Lord gave to us. And then he gave three more prophetic forecasts. He forecasted once again, as we've seen over and over again in this jet tour through his life, that he again forecasted his upcoming suffering and his rejection by his own generation. That's Luke 17, verse 25. And then he predicted the conditions of the last days, which would be the days immediately preceding his second coming. That's in Luke 17, verses 26 to 30. And then he predicted the judgment of the living at the time of his second coming in verses 34 to 37. It was then at this time that he spoke the parable that we talked about earlier, the parable of the persistent widow, Mrs. Thundermuffin, you know, the picture, and the unjust judge. And then he went on to teach the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, in which he taught about the basis on which God answers prayer. And that is the basis of humility. Genuine humility and submission before God. Okay, and then after this, he took up some small children in his arms. He put his hand upon them, and he blessed them. And he said to his disciples and to those around him, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. There are only two types of people who will be in heaven. There are little children. Those Heaven will be populated by little children who die before the age of accountability or before the time of the, you know, the age of decision, you can call it, when they can finally understand the gospel. And the other will be those who come to God in the trusting and humble attitude of little children. So isn't that interesting to think about? Two types of people in heaven, little children and those of us who are willing to come to Christ as little children. Well, the proud Pharisee of Christ's parable was not willing to come to the Lord in humility as a little child, was he? And therefore, he did not go away. He did not go home justified as the publican who did come to the Lord as a small child and said, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then we had the event of the rich young lawyer, and he came to Christ asking what he could do to inherit life, but he was tragically not willing to put Christ before mammon. He worshipped riches more than he did the Lord. He would not sell all that he had. I don't think the Lord would have really required that, that of him anyway, but he, was will, he wanted to see where his heart was. That was the study of the poor rich man. Then we went on to have the next study of the rich poor men in which the Lord taught his disciples that those who are willing to forsake the things of this world for his name's sake will never be um, cast, they will never be ashamed because they will always reap heavenly rewards. Um, he was saying that believers may suffer a loss for a time and they might be cast down and they might be rejected and they might be scorned and even sometimes by their closest family members but in the long run he assured them that the one who suffers loss for his name's sake will never ever be a loser. And uh, we could say to that for what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul. And then in one of my most favorite parables, and I'll end with this, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. Jesus taught that in the calling and the choosing of individuals as well as groups of people, whether they be Jews or Gentiles, for his kingdom work, God acts sovereignly and graciously. And he does not need to give any man a reason for what he does. 
or for whom he selects or when he selects them. Some of us he might have selected to serve him at an early age when we were children. Others might, like the thief on the cross, accept the Lord, come to the Lord right on there at their dying moment. That's God's sovereignty. We are, he, we, he doesn't have to give us an answer for those type of things. He's the one in control. And we learn that none of us ever has a right to question what the Creator God does with what is His. And none of us should ever have an eye of evil jealousy toward a fellow laborer because God is good to him. We might say, well, why are you so much better to them than to me? That's not for us to question because God is good to all of us. None of us deserve his goodness. We all deserve hell. Dr. Barnhouse says that hell is the only thing in the Bible that's logical, really, because grace is not logical. Mercy is not logical. Well, I'm going to close there. Um, I didn't quite finish, but I got closer than I have been. <laughs> close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time we've had together to look at your son's life. It's so rich and it's so full. And so many times he just showed us over and over and over again who he is and how wonderful he is and how loving and kind and how it's not his will that any man should perish. Even the self-righteous religious rulers of Israel, he loved them. And that's why he so bluntly and so boldly pointed out their sin to them. And, Father, I pray that we can do that, that we can point out sin in people people that, that don't know you, but that yet that we can do it with the compassion and with the genuine love that the Lord had for people, that he just was so mighty in his grace. And I pray that we can have that, that we can love people and yet share with them the truth, that they might be brought into your kingdom, that they might one day sit at that great banquet that you have invited everyone to attend. I pray, Lord, that if there is one here who has never accepted that invitation, that today she would accept the free, gracious offer that you extend to her through the teaching of your word, through the wooing of the Holy Spirit, that she would just say, yes, I want to be at that great wedding supper. I want to be there. I accept Jesus into my heart. I know he died for my sins. I turn from those sins, and I want to live for him. And we'll give you the praise and the glory, knowing that she will be there with us on that great and mighty day that we'll spend through all eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we pray, Lord, that you would bless us through the music of Christy, and I just pray that we'll have a wonderful week serving you. For we pray in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.